those of you who are new to the church, and I'm the ministry trainee here at Hollywell. And this morning I'm going to be teaching from Romans chapter 12. So if you have uh, Romans chapter 12 out in front of you, that passage that we read earlier, you might find that a help. And I want to start with a question this morning. How good are you at driving? How good are you at driving? Okay. Unusual question to start with, but the answer to that question would reveal a surprising insight to the way our minds tend to work. You see, if we went out onto the roads and did a study of all the drivers coming up Forest Road, we'd find at one end of the spectrum some people are distracted, they drive too fast, they don't understand the highway code, they they never use their indicators, they drive right up on the, the bumper of the person in front of them. They're the poor drivers. Other people we'd find are very courteous, consistent, safe drivers. They stick to the speed limit, but they don't dawdle. These are the, the good drivers. And most people would be somewhere in the middle. But if we ask individuals, if I ask you this morning, how good are you at driving? Where on that scale do you put yourself? And... This study has been actually done by many universities across the globe a number of times. And what they find is that up to 90% of people put themselves above average. In other words, nearly everybody thinks they're better than most other people. And this tendency of the way we think is, is given a name. It's called the superiority bias or illusory superiority. It's the tendency to think of ourselves as better than all other people at any given task. And it's not just restricted to driving. So if you ask people about their social skills, you'd get a similar pattern. Or if you ask people about their teaching skills or their their work that they do as a job. Or if you ask people about their family relationships or all sorts of things. We have this tendency to think of ourselves as better than those around us. Now, I'm not here this morning to lecture you about your driving. But consider for a moment, if we allow that mindset to drift into our lives as Christians, what if we were to ask the question, how good a Christian are you? Even that question is filled with toxic assumptions, so don't try and answer it. But can you imagine the damage that would be done if we considered ourselves better than other Christians? If we considered ourselves better than those around us in the church? Perhaps you don't need to imagine, perhaps you've seen the damage done by Christians who have this sense of superiority to those around them. And it's seen in all sorts of different ways. The most obvious way, of course, would be those who you approach them in the church and they have this overwhelming sense of of, of pride and, and arrogance about them. Perhaps they don't engage with a certain group or type of people. Perhaps they are uh, uncompromising whenever you have to work with them or deal with them. Perhaps they get extremely angry and frustrated when things don't go their own way. That's the easy way to spot that somebody has got this mindset. But sometimes it it hides a little bit under the surface. Other times it's seen when a person perhaps has been involved in a ministry in the church for many years given many years of faithful service helping and serving and loving those around them and yet They won't hand that ministry over to others. Perhaps it's the music that they're involved with. Perhaps it's the children's work. Perhaps it's something as small as the cleaning. Or perhaps it's a more frontal role like like leadership or preaching. 
And that person won't hand over that role to any other because they say, if it's not done my way, then it's not being done right. And yet there's even more subtle ways that it can be seen. Perhaps the most subtle way comes through the form of self-pity. It seems to be the last place you'd find this uh, arrogance of of, um, assuming ourselves better than those around us. But just have a think about what self-pity is. It's saying, life's too hard for me right now. Life has not dealt me the hand that I deserve. Now, please don't misunderstand me at this point. I don't want to deny the reality of suffering and sorrow. I don't want to deny the fact that there's a right place for grief and weeping and despair and even just weariness. But self-pity is not those things. Self-pity is when sin takes those right responses and twists them. And so self-pity says, I am worth way more than what I have been dealt here. Self-pity says, I deserve admiration from those around us because of what I'm suffering. Self-pity turns everything onto me. I'm the one who deserves recognition. So when Paul starts his passage that we're going to consider today, Romans 12 verse 3, with this instruction, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, the temptation might be to relegate that instruction to, ah, that's not talking about me, that's talking about those other people in the congregation. Those who were the first on my list. Those who walk around with their their chest puffed out and their pride brimming uh, out of every sentence. But the reality is that each of us in some ways is prone to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And this superiority bias that we we spoke about will show itself in a wide variety of ways. Whether it's arrogance or whether it's distrust. Whether it's controlling authority or even whether it's self-pity and despair. Now remember, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, remember where we've come from. Because in verse 2, Paul has been telling us, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Instead, think in line with your renewed minds. Your renewed mind should, should inform the way that you think. Now that was a general instruction in verse 2, and we thought about that last week. But now in verse 3 onwards, he's going to take that general instruction... Be careful about the way you think and is going to apply it to a specific area of life. How do you think about yourself? Who do you think you are? Who are you? That's the question that Paul's going to be asking today. And unless we've got the right understanding of who we are as Christians, then the tendency of sin is to distort our minds, to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Notice that Paul didn't really need to tell us, don't think of yourself as too lowly than you ought. It's not that nobody ever does think of themselves too lowly, but the general pattern of sin is to cause us to think of ourselves too highly. And so Paul's saying, I'm going to speak against that pattern of the world, that pattern that you might have even noticed in your life. And instead, I'm going to give you the right way to think about yourself. And he does that by diving into an illustration. Verse 4 now. In order to explain who we really are, Paul draws this picture, this illustration. He says, look at the body. And what do you see in the body? Well, the body is made up of 
many different parts. You've got your hands and your feet and your legs and your arms and your head, your lungs, your tongue, etc. You could go on. Many different parts of the body. But at the end of the day, all these parts come together to make just one body. That's the lesson that Paul starts off with. The body is many different parts, yet they're all together to make one new unity. And in verse 5, he says to Christians, it's exactly the same with you. There's a sense in which you no longer operate as a standalone entity. There's a sense in which you as a Christian are no longer an individual separate item. Instead, you are part of a bigger body. Let's have a read of verse 5. He says, So in Christ we who are many form one body. Hang on, what does that mean? So in Christ we who are many. Well, we've covered that in chapters 5 and 6 particularly of the book of Romans. So if, you, if you've not been with us in this series and perhaps late this afternoon, have a read over chapter 5 and 6 to see what he means by in Christ. But basically, it means this. When a person becomes a Christian, it's not like they just, they they look to Jesus and they begin following him. That is part of what it is to be a Christian. To look to Jesus and to begin following him. But there's there's a closer sense of involvement with becoming a Christian. When you become a Christian, you don't just look to Jesus and follow him, but actually, you are joined to Jesus. You share something of his life. The spirit of Jesus comes to live in the hearts of people who become Christians. And so Christians are not just those who are separate from Jesus, perhaps looking across to him and seeing him as an example. Instead, a Christian is somebody who has been joined to Christ, who has Christ living in them. Or in the way Paul describes it, a Christian is someone who lives in Christ. Now, Imagine the scene where you've got now more than one person joined to Christ. You've got more than one Christian. Well, if the first Christian has been joined to Christ, then when you get the next Christian joined to Christ, you notice that second Christian is also joined to the first Christian. By virtue of each of us being joined to Christ, it also means that we're also joined to one another. If you want a slightly different illustration of it, imagine a bunch of grapes, for example. Um, Each individual grape in the bunch is attached to the vine. So you could say the vine, the branch, the stalk, is like Jesus. And each grape is attached to the vine. But as each grape is attached to the vine, so also the grape becomes part of the bunch. You can't be attached to the vine unless you're part of a bunch. You don't, get, you don't get grapes stuck out on their own. The grapes come together in bunches. And if you're going to be removed from the vine, then you're removed from the bunch. Or equally, if you want to be removed from the bunch, the only way to do it is to be removed from the vine. And so, uh, Paul says, actually his image goes one step further. Because the image that Paul uses of the body It's not like a bunch of grapes, because in a bunch of grapes, you've got all these grapes, but yeah, each grape is distinct. You know, you could take one grape and consider it on its own. But in in the picture of the body that Paul's using, you've got all these individual parts, the hands, the feet, the legs, the, the, the body, the eyes, the head. But each of these parts of the body, they're all connected. They're all dependent upon one another. They all rely on one another. There's a much closer unity 
between the parts of the body than there is between grapes in a bunch. And so Paul's illustration forces us to realise that as Christians, we can't be considered separately from the body that we've been joined to. That's what he means that when, back in verse 5 now, he says, each member belongs to all the others. Your place as a Christian is to belong to, to be joined with, to be dependent on, to be connected to the other members of the body of Christ. So let's ask that question again that we started with. Who are you? What do you think of yourself as? Who do you think you are? And the answer to that question, if you're a Christian, is that you are a member of the body of Christ. If you're a Christian, you are part of the body of Christ. And that is good news. Because that means that you are not left alone in the struggle of life. Whether it's against sin, whether it's against temptation, or whether it's against hardship and trouble and suffering. You're not left alone to face those things. You are part of the body of Christ. You are connected to and joined to. You are dependent upon many other members who will suffer and grieve and stand with you alongside that suffering that you face. It means if you are a member of the body of Christ, that when you stand up as a witness for Christ, you don't stand alone as one small voice against the world. Sometimes it'll feel like that, especially if you're the only Christian in your office tomorrow morning. But the reality is that you are part of the witness of the whole body of Christ, the global body of Christ, that has has confessed Jesus Christ as Lord for over 2,000 years. And even though you are rejected and ostracised and put aside by the world, yet there is a body of church members There is the body of Christ who would be ready to accept you, who would be ready to welcome you, who would be ready to help you and support you, even though they might not even know you, even though they might not even know your name. Do you not believe me? On the way out, look at the notice board. There are people there who Christians in this church send money to, who they pray for, who they support. And most of the Christians in this church haven't even met them. Some of the Christians won't even know all the names of the people on that board. And yet they're willing to share their money and their prayers for those people. Why? Because those people too are part of the body of Christ. We care for them because they're part of the same body that we have been joined to. And it means that if you are a member of the body of Christ, that when you seek wisdom to face those difficult decisions of life, when you're stuck against uncertainty and you're not sure which way to go, then you're not left stumbling in the dark, trying to scratch a a way out. Instead, you are part of the body of Christ. The body which is made up of members of, of all generations and all walks of life and all sorts of experience and all sorts of different levels of knowledge and education. People who have seen God's hand guide and lead them. People who have testimonies of of the way God has helped them and answered their prayers. And those people will be ready and willing to guide you and help you and walk with you to tread those paths that you're treading for the first time because they've been there and done that already. You see, 
being part of the body of Christ is an attractive proposition. Isn't this so much of what the world is looking for? Isn't this so much of the the community and the fellowship that the world looks for? Why is is music sort of split up into different genres and, and people attach themselves to perhaps one particular genre? Why are uh, the, the football fans such, such organised groups together? Their, their, their community isn't so much based on the football as on the team that they support, the name, the colours, the kit, the sense of community that they share. You see, all around the world, people are looking for this sense of community, for a sense of belonging, for a sense of purpose. And it can be found here in the church. Here in, in, in the body of Christ, when, when things are working as they're designed to, we find a fellowship characterised by love. It's a place where we are taught, where we can learn and mature. It answers the world's desire for belonging and community. And it's only in this community that Christ can be found. It's only in the body of Christ that Christ himself can be found. And where salvation and where forgiveness is lived out. But watch out. Because there will be some here this morning who perhaps have seen the attractiveness of the church. And they've sought to try and join themselves to the church. They've done that by, perhaps this is you, by just... Well, I'll meet where they meet. And I'll talk like they talk. And I'll sing the words they sing. And I'll wear the clothes they wear. And I'll, and I'll be in the places they are at. And that's like a, like a grape trying to join itself back into the bunch. And it can, it can stand there in proximity to the bunch. And to everybody else, it can look like it's part of the bunch. But unless that grape is joined to the vine, then it really isn't part of the bunch. Are you one who has seen the attractiveness of the church and sought to join yourself to it without first having yourself joined to Christ? Have you been joined to Christ through faith? Are you sharing the life of Christ? Do you have your spirit living in your heart? Have you repented of sin and come to Christ first? Because until you have, then there will be no real fellowship that you can enjoy with the church, with the body of Christ, until you've first come to know Christ himself. The second point, I want to go back to uh, Paul's illustration. Remember in verse 4, he painted this picture of the body for us. We've had to think about how the body is many uh, parts, but one body. But now think again. What do you notice about all those individual parts? Paul says in verse 4, these members do not all have the same function. So the feet, for example, are doing the walking. Well, I wouldn't be very good at walking unless I could see where I was going. But it's not my feet that see where I'm going, it's my eyes that see where I'm going. And as I walk, I need to be held upright to keep my balance. And so I've got my legs for that. But my legs, really, well, they're the muscles that are holding me up, but they've not got any sense of balance at all. They're just muscle and bone. My balance comes from a little device inside my ears. You see, so the body is like, you could pick any, any two parts. You could, you could think of the way every part of the body needs nutrition and food. But it's only the stomach that processes the food. So the body is like one big machine working together. Each individual part only maybe has a small role to play. But even though it's only got a small role, 
There was no part that you would say, oh, I can do without that. Without adversely affecting some other part of the body. And again, in verse 6, Paul is saying it's exactly the same with the body of Christ. Not all the individual parts, not all the individual members have the same function. As Christians, verse 6, we have different gifts. That's an interesting word to use, isn't it? Gifts. We have different gifts. But do you see what Paul is doing by using that word, gifts? Remember that he's urging us, in verse 3, he's started by urging us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And he's urging us to try and suppress that superiority that so often creeps into our thinking. And instead, think of ourselves in line of, with who we really are. And he uses the word gifts here in verse 6 to make the point that whatever you are, whoever you are, whatever you have, whatever your abilities, whatever your strengths, whatever your talents, whatever your wealth, whatever your status, whatever your influence in society, all those things have been given as a gift by God to you. And secondly, they've been given as a gift for a purpose. For the purpose of building up the body of which you are a part. Now, to some members of the body, their gifts will be rather uncommon. And so from Paul's list, you could pick out, for example, those like prophecy, or those like teaching, or those like leadership. It's not everybody that's gifted those gifts. But to some others, their, their gifts will be more broad or commonplace. And so he, he includes as a gift things like serving. Well, serving, surely, comes in some way to every member of the body. He also includes things like encouraging or showing mercy. But regardless of what your particular gift is, Paul wants us to see that two things. First, God is the one who gave us the faith. God is the one who joined us to this body. And secondly, God has given us a gift to use in order to serve the rest of the body. And just think of, the, just think of that for a moment. God, who is the creator of the universe, who made everything that exists just by speaking his word, who does he give the responsibility to for looking after his church? Who does he give the responsibility to for caring for his people? He gives it to you. He gives it to you as a member of the body. It's you. You are the means by which God is building, encouraging, showing mercy to, teaching, leading his church. It's your gifts, your abilities, your time, your talents, your effort, your money, your concern, your influence your encouragement, your prayers that God is using in order to build up his body, the body of Christ. So when Paul encourages us, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, we need to be careful not to make that mean, make sure you don't think of yourself as, as very much value at all. Quite clearly that's not, not what Paul means. Paul says you are of immense value. Not least for the fact that Christ has given his own life for you, if you're a Christian. 
but also because you are the means that God is using to build up and strengthen and serve his church. You are the, the means that God is using, using the gifts that he has given you to serve his church. So to think of ourselves rightly then, to, to answer that question rightly of who are we as Christians, who do we think of ourselves as, to answer that rightly means that we must recognise that first that we are in Christ Jesus if we're Christians. And if we're in Christ Jesus then we are members of his body. We're not lone rangers. We're not lost sheep. We're not travelling wanderers. We're part of the body. We depend on and we are connected to all the other members of the body. We're in community. We're in fellowship. That's who we are in Christ. And secondly, that as part of this fellowship, you have a role to play. To use the gifts and the blessings God has given you to bless and to serve the other members of the body. And when we get that right in our thinking, well, there'll be no room, will there, for arrogance or pride? There'll be no need for us to defend our little areas of ministry like, like our way is the only way that matters. Like no one could do it better. There will be no cause for self-pity or despair. When we get this right in our thinking, how could we do anything other than to offer our bodies as living sacrifices? How could we do anything other than to offer our whole lives in service to God and to his body, the church? Let's pray.